Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Nathan Moore. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM, and we're also podcasting as part of the Tej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, find out what's happening in your community and around the state. We have been in a deep freeze this week. Nothing to be too surprised about here in January, but I'll tell you, those teens are really chilling my bones. Gonna have to warm up in the studio. Got some local news coming up. Later in the show, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska, plus an interview with Jeff Bushman. He's with an architecture firm putting together the Invisible Seaville contest this year. But right now we're joined in the studio by Elliot Robinson, he's the news editor at Charlottesville Tomorrow, as well as Josh Mandel, a reporter over at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Let's start with you, Elliot. Uh, You attended and wrote about the joint meeting of uh, Charlottesville City Council and Albemarle Board of Supervisors uh, this week. Take me through what that meeting looked like. It was mostly as an overview of the things that the city and the county are already working together on and looking forward to other things they could possibly collaborate with. There are several memorandums of understanding that the city and the county have now. One of them, for example, is with the new courthouse complex that is coming up at in Court Square. And uh, they didn't get in very deep into the issue, but one of the things they mentioned was that the city and the county staffs do communicate an awful lot together, and there are times that the boards themselves don't have any idea until it gets presented to them. So they want to continue having those discussions on the staff level and then also look at some of the bigger issues that they can do at the same time. But there are certain kinks in that. Like, for example, their, the way that they do their budgets don't exactly match up. But they, uh, had, they did plan to have a joint capital improvement plan meeting at some point in the future. And uh, this whole discussion led to a side discussion outside of the meeting itself of what else can the city and the county do to work together and how far can that possibly go. Because in a way, it seems that since everything here is so interconnected, it really seems like it's more of a hindrance than a help that the city and the county do so many things in their own respective silos and their jurisdictions. Yeah, this is one of those things where, where Charlottesville and Albemarle County, they're, they're joined at the hip, you know? I mean, economically, culturally, socially, you can't really talk about one without the other in, in many ways. Why do we have two separate jurisdictions still? I feel that in a way when the Commonwealth of Virginia set up cities and counties as two completely separate entities, it was a great idea at the time, but now that more than 100 years has gone by, the General Assembly should possibly take a look at that and maybe in the spirit of collaboration, the city and the county could possibly bring up something that they can send to their delegates and senators to find some way to make these uh, separate entities in the in the state work closer together. I was, uh, recall, I grew up in Hampton Roads and there's seven cities there. Mm-hmm. Combined, they would have the population of Philadelphia and probably the same cloud on the national stage, but instead... You have seven cities warring against each other to land a large business or build a stadium or even do some transit projects. So it just seems like the state as a whole has set things up that 
jurisdictions are warring against each other. And hopefully meetings like these will lead to Charlottesville and Albemarle of taking away that general feeling from people who live in both that they are constantly at odds with each other. And there was a, a time, I feel like not that long ago, a year or two ago, when the city and county relations were maybe a little more tense in some of those courthouse discussions, which you alluded to before, um, and just other sort of diverging priorities. It was kind of a cool reception between each other, but this meeting was a very different tone, very good feelings all around. It was definitely good feelings all around. One thing they did at the very beginning, they had an exercise where they broke up the counselors and the supervisors in the groups and they gave them post-it notes with different things that they've worked together on from the 70s up until today and had them put them all up on the boards just to show, look at all these things that we've done that have gone well together. Elliot, thanks for that. Um, Josh, I want to turn to you and talk about some of the education news in Charlottesville and Albemarle County this week, in particular uh, gifted programs. Um, the uh, Albemarle County School Board was talking about gifted programs and kind of a new model they're, they're looking at implementing. Take me through what that's about. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of interviews and research about the local gifted programs over the last few weeks. I think Albemarle and Charlottesville are both having a lot of discussions about educational equity and gifted education really comes up to the forefront because in both school divisions, white students are identified as gifted at rates that are four or five times higher than black students or Hispanic students. And there's clearly something wrong with that with that model. And leaders of the school divisions acknowledge that the identification system is broken. Albemarle County's proposed budget right now includes about $100,000 to hire a new uh, program manager for gifted services to change the talent development model in uh, elementary schools. Uh, Talent development is the idea that uh, the gifted resource teacher at a school works with a group of students who are not all formally identified as gifted, but show uh, gifted traits and have the potential to get there. And the new model that Albemarle's trying to move towards is that this talent pool would, uh, after doing a like a screener standardized test, they would take the top 10% in each demographic category, like uh, African-American students, Hispanic students, economically disadvantaged students, and they would all be in that talent pool and presumably getting the same gifted services that formally identified students are. Uh, let's back it up just for a second. Sure. What is the current identification system for, for gifted students? Generally, they they use a nationally recognized screening test similar to a IQ test, and that's one of the key uh, factors in being identified. What role has parent advocacy played in, in getting kids into the gifted programs at their schools? I think it's definitely played a role. And in my conversation with Albemarle's gifted coordinator, I think they've taken some steps to minimize it. But parents definitely play a role in the process. Uh, and I think that probably accounts for a, 
a lot of the disparities that, that we're seeing. So Albemarle is trying to tackle this, do better, uh, approach it with a sense of equity and inclusion for, for kids from lots of different kinds of backgrounds. Um, what impact are they hoping to have with this new uh, gifted coordinator position? It's an interesting question because at the last school board meeting that I went to, one of the school board members, Katrina Carlson, pointed out that like giving all kids gifted services still isn't the same as formally identifying them as gifted. And I think that the school division sort of like wants to eliminate the, the impact of that designation as much as possible, but it's required by the state. And, and I think that Katrina Carlson was saying that this talent development model shouldn't ignore the fact that the problems with identification still exist. Like they're like it shouldn't be taken as a given that students of color or low-income students don't have easily identifiable talents. That there has to be also uh, like a lot of introspection and and changes to the identification process too. Thanks again for coming in. Thank, Thank you. you. Elliot Robinson is the news editor, and Josh Mandel is a reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. To read more and get into the weeds with all these topics, you can go to seavilletomorrow.org. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TEEJ FM network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU and TEEJ FM are both a service of the University of Virginia, though opinions expressed on this show are, of course, just that, their opinions. They are not the positions of the university. Stay with us here on Soundboard. Well, it's another week of news from the General Assembly, even more so than usual for this short session. This week kind of feels like posturing and stumping for the election year campaigning that's about to happen. Uh, We're joined on the phone by Peter Galaska, journalist based in the Richmond area. Peter, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. So let's start off today with a a, a story that that ended up really catching fire. There was a bill to slightly ease restrictions on late-term abortions. This is uh, uh, when a mother's health is uh, or, or life is in danger. It failed to leave the committee. But it hit the far right-wing press. It became a lightning rod for trolls nationwide. They've gone after Virginia Democrats. Take me through what's going on here. Yeah. Well, this bill got attention from none other than Donald Trump, Breitbart, um, Tucker Carlson, and the entire um, conservative media section, which, of course, is part of it is fanning the flames towards next uh, November's uh, uh, state elections. What happened was that Kathy Tran, who's a new delegate from Fairfax, a Democrat, introduced a bill that's been around before that would loosen uh, some of the requirements for trimester abortion, late-term abortion. So that she came under um, very heavy fire from uh, Republicans. And um, one of the things it would do, if you wanted to get a late-term abortion, you had to have the certification of three physicians. She would wanted to change that just to one physician. The big issue that everyone is talking about is whether a baby can be aborted as it's being born. And then uh, Governor Ralph Northam, who should know something about this because he's, uh, by training, a pediatric neurologist, uh, a medical doctor, was on WTOP in Washington radio, uh, and he was saying, basically, suggesting that the, uh, a baby could be killed after it's born if it's severely deformed. He claimed later that this was taken wildly out of context. 
But in any event, um, the bill is dead. But um, it, it really, really resounded very, very quickly on Wednesday. How did this particular, how did it come to pass this time? I mean, I mean this is a bill that, that seems like it's kind of tweaking around the edges. You know, it's like, well, we're going to change how many doctors have to sign off on a, right. on a medical procedure uh, related to abortion. Um, why, why did it catch fire in the way that it did? Well, I think that several things happened. First off, the Republicans in, in the General Assembly kind of cramped down on uh, late-term abortions in 2012. This bill would sort of try to undo some of that, although some of it's already been allowed. Um, especially if the child is severely deformed and not viable, meaning it would die or the mother's life's in danger, stuff like that. But what happened was that Republicans really are worried about the uh, anti-Trump down-ballot vote coming up in November. And this is a way to really trigger um, interest among middle-class people. Uh, I know Carlson, I watched him on Fox, and he was saying basically, oh, the the Democrats are now the party of the poor and the very rich and they're leaving the middle class behind. Well, this is an obvious gambit to play towards a, you know, more conservative uh, middle class voters, which is what the Republicans need to hold on to their seats. Well, and, and this particular issue, you know, they take something like, let's change the number of doctors we have to sign off and then morph it into Democrats want to kill babies. I mean... <laughs> yeah, I know. That's exactly what happened. And I think the governor's comments, while sincere, were really, they were, he, he kind of fell into a trap. And so did Tran. And even, even the co-sponsor of the bill, um, Don Adams, a Democrat from Richmond, backed away from it, apologizing, say, I, I didn't really read this bill before I co-sponsored it, which is somewhat disingenuous. But anyway. Well, speaking of uh, uh, Republican bills to uh, quash women's rights, there is the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, it was led by feminists in Virginia. Uh, Democrats this year pushed for passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. The state Senate passed it. The House wouldn't even let it out of committee for a floor vote. What's right. going on with this story? Well, once again, I mean, this is like the fifth time it's happened that the Senate passes the ratification, making, it would make Virginia the 38th state and last state needed to ratify the ERA nationally. It's been, of course, ERA's been around since 72. In any event, um, Senate passed it again this year, ratification, and then a House committee bottled it up. And now um, proponents of the ERA are taking a couple steps. One is they're trying to, to convince the House of Delegates to take it out of committee and put it up before uh, an entire uh, House of Delegates vote which might be different than, you know, might break it free. And the other one would be just to come at it in different ways. And I'm not sure how successful that is going to be. Uh, once again, it may be if Democrats uh, gain control of the House and the Senate in November elections. We'll have to wait and see. Sure. I mean, so both of these are kind of angling toward women-centered political issues being really big in the 2019 campaigns coming up. Yeah, exactly. I know that um, the Washington Post reported that three Congresswomen who are newly elected, um, Abigail Spanberger, Elaine Luria, and Jennifer Wexton up in Northern Virginia, have all like been lobbying uh, from Congress to convince Virginia to go ahead and ratify ERA, saying it's about time. And, uh, of course, you have a number of, of, of new uh, and empowered female legislators in the General Assembly. So we'll see what happens. I want to turn over to education a little bit. There were thousands of educators, teachers, and right. others who marched on Richmond uh, earlier this week uh, for more funding. Uh, Virginia ranks 40th in the country for per-pupil spending, even though we are the eighth wealthiest state in the country. What, uh, what happened at the protest? What did they have to say? Well, I think it's sort of mirroring a national trend. I mean, you had 
uh, was teachers in West Virginia going on strike um, with got a lot, which is rare in West Virginia. But I mean, they would they really got a lot of national attention. Then you've got the Los Angeles situation where you got teachers striking there, and now in Virginia, the teachers aren't striking, but they're saying, "Hey, fund us." I think, and among things they point out is Virginia is I think it's eleventh in the among the states in disposable income, so it's a fairly rich state, and yet I think teacher salaries around thirty fourth. In the, in the country, and as you noted, 40th when it comes to, to spending overall. And, and so why? I mean, why should teachers, you know, have to, you know, not be able to live a middle-class life? Well, I know there's some stories that a family decided not to have a child because they couldn't afford it. And that's crazy because, you know, obviously education is essential for the state's prosperity. Right. Speaking of the state's prosperity going forward, let's close with the latest look at Virginia's demographics, uh, how much we're growing or declining uh, in terms of population size and where. Uh, you and I have talked about this some before, but we've we've seen a net out-migration in Virginia yeah. since 2012, so more people leaving the state than coming in. But Northern Virginia is still growing really fast. Uh, take me through this latest report. Yeah, well, it actually came out fairly recently. Um, earlier, say 10 years ago for a period, I think until 2007, the state was seeing pretty much an in-migration. And I think you can see that because of a, a number of reasons. Among them would be um, jobs, government jobs, in particular, low taxes and, and the like. And, and a new report, I believe it was out by UVA, it was at the Weldon Center. Yeah, the Weldon Cooper Center for Demographics. Yeah. So they're saying that that's, you know, even though you're seeing areas such as Loudoun County in northern Virginia and the Richmond area growing with in-migration, you're seeing a lot more of it um, kind of leaving, especially in, in counties in the far southwest, the coal counties like Dickinson County and some others, and in the south side where, you know, tobacco, textiles, those industries have really been decimated by global trade recently. And what's also slowing things has been, you know, after the 2008 crash, economy crash, you had sequestration, which is, you know, was really limiting adding jobs, and um, a lot of jobs left, and then defense spending went down uh, significantly after 2008. So those factors are changing um, the state's demography, and it's, it's going to have an impact politically. What I see in this, just looking at where people are going and, and presumably where the jobs are, is that there's a lot of, of, of growth and, and potential still in, in Virginia's cities, basically, in the metros of the Golden Crescent there, Northern Virginia especially, mm-hmm. but also Richmond, Hampton Roads. Yeah. And if you prefer smaller town life, uh, in some of the college towns uh, further west. But really, south side, southwest Virginia, what, what's the future look like? Well, I think what it's going to be is that you're going to see Already there's a very significant political divide between the urban people and, to some extent, suburban people. And then you've got the rural people who, um, you know, have somewhat different interests and, uh, and also tend to be, you know, socially more, perhaps more conservative. I know Richmond's enjoying a renaissance. In fact, it's becoming a problem with gentrification because it's new, new areas and arts and things like that and restaurants have really drawn in a lot of, of younger people who make money. And so you're going to see them voting a certain way, even some of the suburbs which you saw in the congressional elections last year voting a certain way towards more democratic, more centrist, or to some extent progressive policies, whereas you're going to see the uh, the more rural people sticking with the older GOP types. All right, Peter. Well, what's this uh, all uh, speak to, um, you know, as far as the state overall? 
Well, I think what you're going to see is that, and I think throughout the state, it's really important to try and grow new jobs that are not specifically tied to the federal government, as you've seen with the slowdown, the shutdown, temporary shutdown is done. And you're seeing that with Amazon, you're seeing that with Facebook in Henrico County, you're seeing, you know, uh, an inslot of IT jobs, you've got UVA, Tech, and George Mason really beefing up their data uh, education programs, and that's going to be the future, obviously, which is not saying a great deal, but that's true. All right, Peter, thanks much. (laughs) Okay, thanks. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in Richmond. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TEJ FM network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. Well, welcome back to Soundboard. Uh, we're going to close out the show today with an interview with Jeff Bushman. He's a partner at Bushman Dreyfus Architects, or BDA, as they like to call themselves. And uh, they've got a special uh, contest going on right now. And Jeff, uh, thanks for coming in. Uh, thanks for having me. So this is an annual prize, and it's uh, a contest around design that your firm is running. It's called Invisible Seaville. What is Invisible Seaville? Well, backing up a little bit, we... Um, we um had a discussion uh, a while back in, in our firm with our group about how to uh, give back to our community that's supported us for so many years. And, you know, we thought rather than uh, sponsor something or give to a charity, we thought, you know, we're designers. We, um, we think about design all the time. We believe in the power of design. And we thought it would be a an interesting uh, proposition for us to uh, take it upon ourselves, somewhat naively, I think, to raise the level of conversation in Charlottesville about design and the role of design. Uh, there's so many interesting questions uh, around the, que- the idea of design uh, in our town, uh, starting from last year's, uh, or, or the ongoing question of what to do about Civil War generals in our parks and what would be an appropriate uh, piece of public art. That was our last year's competition uh, with a site at the end of the downtown mall. Um, this year, uh, we're calling the uh, design competition Invisible Seaville, and we're asking uh, participants to um, um, describe uh, in, uh, uh, on a piece of paper. Uh, uh, it has to be two-dimensional, but it could be almost anything. Uh, to describe or tell us about um, a system, uh, a story, a narrative, a condition, um, um, a situation, or a place that uh, may not be largely known to the public. Uh, In other words, you know, speak your own truth about where you live. Uh, Tell us um, how you'd like it to be better, or tell us uh, how you're thinking about it in ways other people may not be thinking about it. Um, And accompany that image with uh, a caption, we're calling it. So our, our competition brief, it's a little bit unusual for a design competition to ask for a separate caption, but we're in a way, we're almost equating the words with the image. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll have a show at the Jefferson School uh, in March 
um, where we'll display both of these side by side. It sounds like a uh, like a real life uh, Atlas Obscura almost. You've got it. It's a little bit less map based than Atlas Obscura. I mean, Atlas Obscura is a is a fascinating book, and anybody who's thinking about that and would like to enter with that kind of a proposition uh, would please do so. Um, there's another book that's also inspiring us, which is uh, a book that Italo Calvino wrote uh, in the 70s called Invisible City um, instead of Invisible Seaville. Uh, Invisible City is a fascinating book, um, and it ostensibly is talking about 55 different cities that uh, Marco Polo saw in his travels to the east, and he comes back and he tells the Kublai Khan about all these amazing cities he's seen. Uh, it's, a great, uh, it's a great bathroom book. It has, each chapter is about two pages, each city. There's 55 of them, as I said. Um, but what you realize uh, after a while is that he's just describing the same city, his hometown, Venice, in 55 different ways. Um, and so that's been an inspiration for us, and that book has inspired other people, like Rebecca Solnit, who wrote uh, three books about uh, San Francisco, New York City, and uh, another one about New Orleans, looking at maps, interesting ways of mapping those cities in ways that nobody has thought about mapping before. Um, so uh, I should say that there's no single winner. We plan on awarding eight unranked winners. Um, our goal is to put up a show. Uh, we have a panel of judges who will select the winners and show them all together, all eight at the same time, represent a kind of kaleidoscopic view of our town. Mm -hmm. And there's a cash prize, $1,000 for each of those winners. That is how what we've sweetened the pot with, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, we said to ourselves, I mean, designers like to do real things, like to build real buildings, uh, design real spaces, get real things published if you're a graphic designer. Um, we're not in a position at present to uh, offer a real project. So we're interested in, I mean, there's a tradition with design competitions, which is uh, to have a design idea competition just to get people talking. Um, and that's our take on it right now. So this is an ideas competition. Um, and to um, make it attractive to people, uh, to, I mean, you know, it takes a lot of time. We value everybody's ideas. And uh, so rather than, again, as I was saying, donating to a cause or uh, we're, we're donating to the idea of design and mm -hmm. uh, compensating people directly. What uh, what problem do you want this to solve? How how do you uh, what's the goal besides just a bunch of great ideas? Well, um, uh, the we started the, the the first idea we had for this year was to rebrand the city. We said, well, let's have a rebranding competition. Charlottesville's got a lot of uh, interesting press in the last year. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions, uh, at least in my travels around uh, the country. Outside of here, the thing what people think about Charlottesville is really interesting and and quite often wrong, uh, based on the events of last summer. So we thought, well, let's rebrand the town. Um, I think, in a way, a, this is a little bit of a rebranding exercise and an opportunity for those of us who live here and who would like to set the narrative straight or any narrative straight, uh, the opportunity to do so. Mm -hmm. So this is a partnership with the Bridge Progressive Arts Initiative. Um, how are you all judging? What, what's the criteria for how you um, decide who the winners are? 
Well, um, frankly, that isn't up to us. We, um, we uh, at, at our firm uh, step back and we have a panel um, that we're putting together with five uh, judges, uh, five jurors. Um, it's a fascinating all-day process uh, at the Jefferson School. We'll have all the entries in. Uh, they'll convene in the morning. Um, it's a cross-section of designers and thinkers um, and just people who live here uh, that we've assembled. And um, they will go to work, rank their favorites, negotiate between themselves about which, which eight should uh, represent the show. Cool. And the deadline is, uh, when is the deadline? It's coming up fast. It's the uh, 11th of February. Okay. And you, uh, folks need to turn in a 20-inch by 30-inch image. The format is 20 by 30 on paper, any media uh, that you want. Uh, it could be thin cardboard. Uh, th that's, that's a function, frankly, of our hanging system. Um, and then the, uh, the descriptive uh, text, uh, the accompanying text, which could be descriptive. It could be um, uh, juxtaposition to the image. It could be anything you want, really, uh, is submitted electronically on our website. Where can folks find out more? Go to, our, go to the website. It's bdaprize.bdarchitects.com. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for coming in. You're very welcome. So that's bdaprize.bdarchitects.com. Jeff Bushman is a partner at Bushman Dreyfus Architects. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Nathan Moore. Our theme song is Kyoto Beat by Moran Alasco and Jay Pun. Check those guys out. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TEJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. And next week is the Folk Marathon here on WTJU. Seven days and nights of round-the-clock folk roots and world music to please your ears. Have a great week. <laughs>